I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face to face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We praise the true and living God for allowing us to be part of this, his ministry. We've had a number of passings uh, in the ministry of people who support the ministry, who've been around, things like that over the years. Well, this one's truly sad. Uh, we lost a favorite animal of ours, uh, little Danita. Uh, she passed, we had to bury her out in the, out in the barnyard, and she had, a little, she had a little baby jackass named Kelsey, and, and, and that baby is just so lost right now. So just think of little Danita as you mourn with us over this. Uh, okay, listen, um, first our websites. Let's start with them, www.bornagainmormon.com. This is where it all started. Lots of information discussed. It's not all updated right now, and it probably should be. Uh, but lots of answers, Q&A about what the Mormon, our position is in trying to reach the Latter-day Saints. Then there's www.hotm.tv, and this site is dedicated to the actual television ministry that we've had for seven years, and now our online ministry and the ministry that we have through TV here in Utah. All the shows of the past are archived at uh, hotm.tv and are ready for your perusal. We also have a store where you can get uh, you know, DVDs. We have plenty of those. We have, of course, uh, books. We have If Then, If My Kingdom Was Of This World, Then My Servants Would Fight. We have uh, I Was a Born Again Mormon. We have A to Z. This one is good for you if you're trying to understand the differences between Mormonism and biblical Christianity. And then we have a book that we have produced uh, for an author friend of ours, Shield of Faith. He's a police officer and he's a believer. That's a great one. Then we also have great t-shirts. This one, Jesus period, Jesus period. And on the back it says, I saw it on Heart of the Matter. And then we have the ever infamous Joseph, if you're, if you're brave, Joseph's myth. Also on the back, I saw it on Heart of the Matter. And then we have uh, the favorite Joseph Smith bump air sticker or computer sticker uh, for your enjoyment. 
And then we have some music uh, uh, DVDs uh, too for your consideration. In fact, check this out. also pick up uh, two short films based on teen sex uh and uh, at the heart of the matter website additionally the heart of the matter website is the hub where most emails come through and uh so requests for information uh questions on the mormon christian debate we get emails constantly that we're answering and uh uh, it's a con- it's a full-time endeavor. And finally, you can go to www.campus, C-A-M-P-U-S with hyphens in between. There should be a graphic on the screen. And there you can read uh, our views on church. Again, that needs to be updated. And then uh, you can go to the following YouTube locations and watch our verse-by-verse teachings at campus. Uh, the graphic should be on the screen telling you how to do that. And if all that's not enough, here in Utah, we are airing along the Wasatch Front our own 24-7 television station. We're right now trying to get with cable. It's a big uh, process. Keep us in prayer that we'll be able to take this unique approach to Christian television and get it on uh, Comcast cable here in Utah and then out in other places. Uh, Yet with the station, we've had some trouble with clarity. It comes in and out. The signal strength is not great. Sometimes, you know, there's adjustments. We get all that. Um, but uh, it is a unique approach, and uh, uh, Seth, who manages it, has been doing a great job. And of course, we invite any and all who are looking to attend a church that teaches the Bible verse by verse. Uh, no memberships, no requirements, no passing the plates, no, you must confess this confessional. If you just want to come and learn the word, Sundays, 10 a.m. here at the Studio Church, or Sundays at 2.30 for uh, meat, morning's milk, afternoon's meat. Uh, How are we able to keep all this going? By the Lord putting it on your heart to support us. Uh, That's how, and that's how it's always been. Now, this is not a petition to our regular supporters. Our regular supporters out there have their own burden and they have supported us. This is not telling them, hey, help us more at all. Nor is this a petition for people who are on a limited fixed income. 
older people, limited fixed income, social security, things like that. Not for you. Don't send any, any fund in. However, if you don't fall into either of those categories and you're led of the Lord to help support our efforts financially for reaching people for the King, we could truly use it. That's just the bottom line. So with that, how about a moment from the Word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. One of the mysteries Christians face is wondering about the actual relationship, what it looks like ontologically, between Christ the Son and God the Father. Uh, many believe they actually understand it. I don't. Um, maybe you do. Of course, the LDS claim that God the Father has a body of flesh and bone as tangible as man's, and that the Son has a body of flesh and bone, and that the Father uh, begat the Son spiritually like he begat the rest of the human race spiritually, but he only begat Christ the Son uh, physically in the flesh. That's his only fleshly, truly begotten Son. And uh, they say the Father literally did that if you go back in early church history. So to them, they are a separate and distinct personages. In Joseph Smith's first vision, God the Father standing in, above Joseph in the air with a body of flesh and bone as tangible as man's is standing next to Jesus Christ who is in his body as tangible as man's. But to biblical Christians, the water gets kind of muddy on this. We have to agree what Jesus says in scripture about he and the Father. For instance, in John 10:30, he says, I and the Father are one. Okay, he says that, so we have to agree with that. We can't say they're two or three. He says we're one. Okay, I agree with that. And then he says, but, and, and then Jesus also says the Father in John 17, 22, listen to this. And the glory, Jesus says, praying to the Father, which thou gave me, he says, I have given them, talking about his apostles, that they might be one even as we are one. So we learn from that that Jesus says the Father gave him glory. Now we read, about, we read and hear in the Trinitarian concepts about co-equality and all these things, but I'm reading that the Son got received glory from the Father, that he did the Father's will, not his own. Then of course we have to admit the utterances of Paul in Philippians 2.58. Listen to this closely. This is where Paul says to believers, you ready? Let this mind be in you, believers, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So we have an interesting thing there. Paul says, let this mind be in you, believers, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, and then he goes on and talks about that. Think about these passages for a second. How do we take all of these views, and frankly, there are hundreds of them, it would be interesting to do a show to show everything that is said about Jesus and the Father in the New Testament especially. How do we make sense of it? Listen to this one. In John 14, 28, Jesus says, you have heard how I said unto you, I go away, and come again unto you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I go unto the Father. Listen, for my Father is greater 
than I. Have you ever considered that verse? Jesus is saying the Father is greater than I. Jesus says I do the Father's will. Jesus says the Father gives me glory. Jesus says I don't do anything except the Father tells me. How does that work? What do we say? I would suggest we follow what scripture says. It says God is one. That's what it says. I would suggest one means one. One does not mean three. One does not mean five. One does not mean two. One means one. I believe in one God. He spoke in the beginning. God, now this is a mystery. I don't understand it, but he spoke and by his words, he created all things. And his word was with him and his word was him. And by his word, he created all things and his word was then made flesh. I don't know how that happened. God took all of his words ever spoken, gathered them together and put them inside a body of flesh called Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this word in flesh was subject to God, the Father. God gave the word glory. God gave the word power. God put all things in the word, uh, made flesh's control, so to speak. The relationship between God and his word was unlike any other because the word made flesh. Man now has the ability to become joint heirs with, that, with the word becoming flesh. Did you realize that? Do you know that's in scripture? Romans 8, 17 says, listen, and if children, then heirs, talking about children of God, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together, also glorified together. To support this, again, recall the words of Paul in Philippians 2 when he said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So, so we have a really interesting thing going on here, which we're gonna explain as we go on in the rest of the year. But I just wanted to bring that out in our discussion from the word. With that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you, praise you. We praise you for sending your son to redeem us, to save us, to be our king, and to mediate between your holiness and our fallenness. We thank you for volunteers. We thank you for people who support. We're thankful for people here in the studio audience and out there who will watch the show live or who will watch it recorded or in the future may someday stumble upon it. We pray that your spirit will guide them to truth. Things I say that are not true are forgotten. And we pray for this in Jesus' name, amen. So we've been talking about Mormon soteriology, uh, which is a big word for how men are saved. Now it's time to kind of express the various Christian views of the same. It's really quite an intriguing topic because Christian views are really not any better understood by the masses of Christianity any more than the masses of the LDS understand their soteriology. I, sometimes we think in the body, oh, we get everything. We understand it all. And we mock Mormons when they don't understand their own doctrine. Well, I gotta tell you, you know, Christians, we don't really understand our doctrine either as a general populace. What does exist within the church writ large is there's a general consensus that says Jesus saves. Now we might laugh at that, but we agree on that across the board. Jesus saves. Interestingly enough, we have to admit the LDS admit that too. 
They say through his atonement, he makes it possible. And we hear all the shenanigans that they pull when it comes to salvation and then exaltation. But bottom line, they say it is by Jesus that this is possible, okay? So they have a form of it. It's just, and of course, it's a different Jesus. But they say it's because of Christ's atonement that all things are possible and people can be saved. Acknowledging this, however, does not help us with the fact that there is a great debate on actually how, who, when, where, how sufficient his salvation is. And additionally, there are polarized extremes among Christians' position relative to the idea of Jesus' salvation in and of itself. For instance, walk into any hyper-grace church or any super carnal church, and you'll see people who have focused as a mass on the fact that Jesus saves. It's Jesus saves, period. That's all it is. And that's all their worship and their walk and everything is about. Jesus has saved me, period. Praise Jesus. And then they don't really seem to move beyond that at all, okay? Then if you walk into other churches, you'll find people who are worshiping and it says, Jesus saves, comma. And then there's more to it. And therefore I can then go on and, but it's Jesus saves, comma. So we have a big difference within the body of Christ. And those soteriological differences really are, are quite interesting when we sit down and examine them. Well, the majority of theologians today, in my opinion, it seems like the majority, side with scripture that supports the teaching that says, it is God who decides who will be saved. And then there are some others who suggest that the believing is up to us and God does not force us to believe, all right? And then we have all kinds of hullabaloo over once you have been saved, can you lose your salvation? Can you either walk away from it or can you fall from grace? That's always in this discussion. So tonight, let's appeal to the glowing whiteboard behind me and try and lay out the basic positions of the two largest groups of theology within the body with some simple discussion. I'm gonna have a, some paragraphs of each thing that each group represents. I'll read them. We might put a note up above to see what they actually say. And you tell me, don't tell me, but you think. What do you think the Bible says? Do you believe what these different principles are suggesting when it comes to soteriology and your salvation? Now, Calvinism, which we're gonna talk about, and Arminianism, uh, Calvinism softened a bit in its approach over uh, the past few decades. While John Calvin, he influenced people and then his followers as they passed his teachings along really threw down some harsh stuff in years gone by. Uh, it softened. In my opinion, it's still pretty harsh, but my opinions don't matter at this point. We're trying to just talk about the facts, all right? So let's look at the facts behind these two major Christian positions on soteriology. First of all, we have to admit with both of them that Jesus Christ is the author of salvation. That is not disputed by either party, okay? And that is why Calvinists and Arminianists today can sit in the same church or on the same pew and not kill each other. Uh, however, in the days gone past, like during the Anabaptist time, they were killing each other over this stuff. So somehow we've grown up, I hope, over this. Uh, so we generally agree that 
it is Jesus Christ who brings salvation. The rub comes down to all the nuances of who, what, when, where, how, why. Before going to the board, I wanna say right here that all the debate and discussion and, and all the deaths, yes, deaths and excommunications, all the hatred and animus and arrogance that has existed and continues to exist today over these points uh, are just baloney. Um, believers are free to believe how they want to believe on these things. And they are free to share their views and or their criticisms of others and still be considered brothers and sisters and not be attacked for their respective faith. Now, uh, I think it's a weapon of darkness when, when Calvinism, Arminianism debate can get in between believers and it, and it does and it still does. Nevertheless, we do seek for truth and clarity and so that's what we explore. And this brings us to another point in fact and that's Calvinist and Arminianism views are both biblically supported. That's the thing that makes them so tenuous in their conflict, is that you can open up the Bible and if you have Calvinist eyes, you'll see through the Calvinist lens and you'll believe the scripture is preaching Calvinism. If you have Arminianist eyes, you'll see through the Arminianist lens and you'll believe it's teaching Arminianism and not Calvinism. And whatever lens you've strapped to your eyes, you're gonna read the word that way. And the key is truth seekers will say, I don't care what lens I've been, I gotta pull them off and look through and past this stuff so I can make a decision in, in harmony with the Holy Spirit of what I think the Holy uh, Scriptures are saying. And you know, the reason, it, uh, for this very reason, cults like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, have come in and say, look at the infighting between uh, the, all the Christians on matters of soteriology. Why don't we supply them with certainty? Let's tell them exactly what they need to believe and push that out to people. And so people who are tired of the battle will say, you mean this is what it is? Exactly, yes it is. I'll join you because we love certainty and we don't like the discomfort and the tension of conflict. So that's what goes on. So what's a soul seeking truth seeker, especially one count coming out of Mormonism to do? Well. Let's talk about these things. And um, as we do, uh, remember next week, I'm, where the X is on the board, this, there's an X right here. This, this is the Calvinist view. Here's the Arminius view. I want you to think to yourselves, what do I really believe? And then here's X, and we're gonna talk about what the X view is. That's gonna be my uh, a suggestion of what I think all this stuff means put together and, and digested, all right? But let's talk about these categories. Choosing God. Can a man born from his mother's womb choose God? God's call on a person's life. Jesus' redemption, who is it for? Can God's call be resisted by people? And is salvation secure once it has been obtained um, by the grace of God? Those are the questions that we have tonight. Now listen, uh, why don't we just do a little experiment? You, you think to yourself, sit there and ask yourself, did God choose me? Did I choose him? Is it a combination of the two? Ask yourself, is God's call open to me where I can accept it or not? Ask yourself, did Jesus pay for the sins of the whole world? 
would a just God have Jesus die on the cross and suffer for the sins of the whole world if he knew that the whole world was not going to accept it? Why would Jesus suffer if God had a foreknowledge that Jesus wouldn't be received by most people? So ask yourself that question. This is what the, the theologians talk about. And then can God be resisted and his call upon people's lives? And then finally, is salvation secure? Okay, I'm just gonna read, there's a book from Curtis Thomas and David Steele. They're both reformed or Calvinists who wrote this book, but they have summarized pretty well what each side believes. And so I'm going to read what they say and I'll just put some highlights above, all right? Let's first, we're gonna talk about Arminianism, choosing God. This is what it says. Although human nature was seriously affected by the fall, man has not been left in a state of total spiritual helplessness. God graciously enables every sinner to repent and believe, but he does not interfere with man's freedom. Man is free to choose. In the Arminius view, God's call on his life, okay? Man's freedom consists in his ability to choose good over evil in spiritual matters. His will is not enslaved to his sinful nature. The sinner has the power to either cooperate with God's spirit and be regenerated or resist God's grace and perish. The lost sinner needs, to, needs the spirit's assistance, but he does not have to be regenerated by the spirit before he can believe. What that's saying is that you can be believe on what God is calling out to you with without being born again. That's what that means. For faith is man's act and precedes new birth. This is a big sticking point. Faith is a sinner's gift to God. It is man's contribution to salvation. So what we have here is you can choose to believe and the man or woman, they come up with the, the believing. They have the capacity to have faith on their own. And once they exercise that faith, God then gives them a new life and they're spiritually reborn by him, okay? That's the Arminianist view. Well, the Calvinist view is this. Because of the fall, man is unable of himself to savingly believe the gospel. The sinner is dead, blind, and deaf to the things of God. That means completely. His heart is deceitful and desperately corrupt. His will is not free, so no free will in Calvinism. His will is not free. It is in bondage to his evil nature, therefore he will not, indeed he cannot choose good over evil in the spiritual realm. Now understand, this does not mean a Calvinist says a person can't do good, they can't walk somebody across the, the, the street. It just means they're saying they can't do anything spiritually that will reconcile them or bring them to faith to trust in God on their own. Consequently, it takes much more than the Spirit's assistance to bring a sinner to Christ. It takes being born again, spiritual regeneration, by which the, spirits makes the, sinner, the Spirit makes the sinner alive and gives him a new nature. So we're talking about you have, the Spirit gives rebirth first. Man does nothing to receive that rebirth. 
does not acquiesce to his will. There is no free will. It is purely based off God doing it through him. Faith is not something man contributes to salvation, but is itself a part of God's gift of salvation. It is God's gift to the sinner, not the sinner's gift to God. Now, the way that's phrased is a little slanted. I'm not sure Arminius think that this is a gift to God we're giving by believing on him. They're kind of slanting it that way, but whatever. Okay, so let's go to God's call. <coughs> the Arminius. God's choice of certain individuals unto salvation before the foundation of the world was based on his foreknowledge that they would respond to his call. He selected only those whom he knew would of themselves freely believe the gospel. Election, therefore, was determined by or conditioned upon what God knew man would do. Okay? The faith which God foresaw and upon which he based his choice of calling that person was not given to the sinner by God. It was not created by the regenerated power of the Holy Spirit, but resulted solely from the man's will. In other words, he chose to believe, okay? Uh, it was left entirely to the man as to who would believe and therefore who would choose to, he would choose to elect to salvation. God chose those he knew. So listen, this is how it is. God knew when he created all, according to the Arminius, who would believe by his foreknowledge. He then elected those he knew would choose by faith of their own choice. He elected them to salvation. That's the Arminius view. Calvinist view, God's choice of certain individuals unto salvation before the foundation of the world rested solely in his own sovereign will. His choice of particular sinners is not based on any unforeseen, uh, any foreseen response or obedience on their part, such as faith or repentance. In other words, God did not say, okay, I will choose those who I know will repent. I will choose those I know will have faith. That is not Calvinism. Calvinism says God chose of his own will, and we'll say goodwill. That is who he chose, his will. Nobody else, his will, okay? These acts are the result, not the cause of God's choice. So what they're saying is God picks and then they will repent and all these other things. Election, therefore, is not determined by or conditioned upon any virtuous quality or act foreseen in man. Those whom God sovereignly elected, he brings through the power of the Spirit to a willing acceptance of Christ. I've never understood that. He brings through the power of the Spirit to a willing acceptance of Christ. So what it is, is they say he calls, he elects, he does it of his own free will and choice, and when that person is elected, they willingly follow, okay? Thus God's choice of the sinner, not the sinner's choice of Christ, is the ultimate cause of salvation, okay? Who has Jesus saved, okay? I'll just make it simple. All, some, really, few, okay? Limited atonement, unlimited atonement, okay? There it is in a nutshell. I'll try to be quick. Arminius, Christ's redeeming work made it possible for everyone to be saved, but did not secure salvation for everyone. 
Although Christ died for all men and for every man, only those who believe on him are saved. This death enabled God to pardon sinners. His death enabled God to pardon sinners on the condition that they believe, but it did not actually put away anyone's sins. That has to happen on the condition of a person choosing, okay? In Calvinism, it's Christ's redeeming work was intended to save the elect only and actually secured salvation for them. This is a difference. In Calvinism, Jesus suffering on the cross for the few actually gave them their salvation at that point. Where here in uh, Arminianism, Jesus saved the whole world, but no one is truly saved until they make the choice to believe. You getting all the differences? That's the difference between uh, limited and unlimited atonement. And then can God be resisted? Can his Holy Spirit be resisted? In Arminianism, the Spirit calls inwardly all those who are called outwardly by the gospel invitation. What this means is a preacher's preaching, the Spirit reaches inwardly, they hear outwardly, but inwardly the Spirit reaches in. He does all that he can to bring a sinner to salvation, but inasmuch as man is free, he can spiritually resist the Spirit's call. So, can God be resisted in Arminianism? Yes, he can. All right, the effectacious call of the Spirit or irresistible grace in Calvinism says, in addition to the outward general call to salvation, which is made to everybody who hears the gospel, the Holy Spirit extends to the elect a special inward call that inevitably, inevitably brings them to salvation. The eternal call can be and often is rejected, excuse me. The eternal call can be and often is rejected, whereas the internal call, which is made only on the elect, cannot be rejected and always results in conversion. <clears throat> okay, so what we have here, a preacher gets up to preach. He gives the message. He's led by the Holy Spirit. His words are from the Holy Spirit. The Arminius says that crowd all hear the call and they choose whether or not to receive it by faith into their heart. And when they do, the Holy Spirit comes in and gives them that witness. The Calvinist says, everyone hears the call, but the Holy Spirit only goes into those who God elected. And when the Holy Spirit moves in, they will be saved and it cannot be resisted, okay? And then finally, falling from grace. Once saved, always saved. This is, if you see this online, this is what they, you know, everyone talks about that. Can you lose, fall from, escape from, cash in, whatever your salvation? Those who believe and are truly saved can lose their salvation by failing to keep up with the demands of the faith according to Arminianism. Uh, not all Arminians believe on this point, there's division. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, once uh, a sinner is regenerated, the general stance is salvation can be, uh, they say lost, uh, you might say um, forfeited, whatever, okay? Uh, the Calvinists, all who are chosen by God, redeemed by Christ, given faith by the Spirit, are eternally saved. 
They are kept in faith by the power God Almighty has preserved for them unto the end. No, cannot lose, walk away, wouldn't want to, wouldn't, the Holy Spirit would never let you, etc., etc., etc. So there you have the two modes or methods of soteriology in the Christian church. You have to think, what do you believe? And like I said, the Bible certainly can um, support both views. I would suggest there's an amalgamation available of those two points with a little bit of tweaking. And that is the one that I think uh, we should look to because we forever will fight. I think Calvinism has some excellent points. I think Arminianism has some excellent points. And it's to those that we're gonna turn to next week and talk about X. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413. 801-590-8413. While the operators are clearing thy calls. From Melbourne, Australia. This man wants to know, I guess this is kind of a hot topic. Um, he's been looking for a biblical response to this question of abstaining from meat with blood still in it. Wondering your opinion on the matter. Also, I share a house with a Muslim. He's not very into Islam, but he does only eat halal meat. Uh, he often offers food for me. I'm not sure if I should eat it. What do you think about this? Any thoughts from Hayden? Uh, I would say this, Hayden, freedom in Christ, completely. Uh, in the apostolic church, you have to understand when we read passages where the apostles are saying, you know, to eat meats or not eat meats or abstain from meats, animals sacrificed to the idols and all that stuff. Uh, the, the, remember the situation was really tenuous. We had two major cultures, one with an enormous 1500 year history, rolling in like a tidal wave and Jesus and his little 12 there bringing in others out of it. And there's this beating in the middle and the apostles in the apostolic church were writing these epistles and saying, don't get, don't get this all mixed up. Women, be quiet in church. Don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Let's get rid of this thing. Let's get rid of that so we can survive, all right? To take those passages now and think that we can't eat meat one way or another is just legalism. There is nothing of substance to it in my opinion because there's liberty in Christ. Now, if God tells you don't eat meat, sacrifice or that has blood in it, then don't do it. And if he says go have a rare steak, go do it. This is what it means to have the Holy Spirit in you. You're free in Christ to make those decisions. And when you join a group that says no on this or yes on that, you know, they're just making decisions for you and it's a cheesy way out. From a man named Lowell, he says, I have enjoyed your shows. He said when he was at the University of Laverne, he got on our website of campus, which stands for Christian Anarchist Meeting to Prayerfully Understand Scripture. And he says, while I was there, I took several classes with Dr. Bernard Eller. Now, Dr. Bernard Eller influenced me greatly along with Leo Tolstoy when it comes to Christian anarchy. People got it all wrong when they think you're talking about secular anarchy. All it means is we have one archy, one first primary being, Christ. That is our king. That's what Christianarchy is all about. Christ is our king. We have no other archies. We don't look at anything else. We are Christian anarchists. Christian, Christ, anarchists. We look to Christ only. Well, Dr. Bernard Eller taught this guy and he says he realizes after all those studies with him, that's what he is. He just never put it together. But he does say, I do want to ask you about tithing. 
I pay tithes. I've been blessed. He's a former Mormon. However, I worry because sometimes I catch myself thinking that it is paying tithes that causes the blessings. Worse, I think that if I don't pay tithes, I might not be blessed. I know this is crap. How can I break this mindset? Many churches teach tithing, but I'm not sure that tithing is today's law. Any help that you can provide over this thinking, et cetera, et cetera, from Lowell J. Okay, I'll just give it to you again. Here's the, here's the issue I have with tithing. First of all, it means 10%. That's a law. That's automatically a law, okay? If you said our church would like us to support them if we can, that's one thing. But to say tithe in the Hebrew, it's 10%. That's what it means. Even if it didn't mean 10%, the word in and of itself is a law because it, it, can, it invokes a percent or some type of mandatory giving. Give your tithes now, like they quote Malachi. That is a law. And when people give under law or do anything under law, they get puffed up in their heart. They kind of ferret other people out to see if they're tithing too. They look down on them if they're not. They impose this legalism on everybody. Well, I don't care if she's a widow and she can barely make ends meet. She should tithe. It's, it's absolutely antithetical to Christ, who says, listen, I gave my life for you to be free. Come out from under bondage. The Holy Spirit moves into you. And you have that subjective relationship with the Holy Spirit to let you be who you are in Christ. And if God says, hey, give generously to your church this week, Give generously. If, if God says, don't give this month, it's gonna be tough on you. Don't give. You have to be able to develop that relationship with the Holy Spirit. That's what, who's guiding us today. So there's my, there's my thing. Now, one last thing on that. I would suggest to you, and listen, this is gonna piss pastors off, and I hope it does. It's faithlessness when they preach tithing. They are not walking in faith. They are not saying, God, I'm gonna trust that you'll provide. I am gonna put it on them and I'm gonna let them feel the heat so they'll open up and they'll pass and they'll give. And I'm gonna, it's faithlessness. We are commanded to walk by faith. And that means if you're a pastor, you walk by faith. You hope that the donations come in. You hope you're able to pay the bills, but gosh darn it, uh, it's walking by faith to not. And that's what it's about. And if your pastor's not doing that, he's faithless. Bottom line, faithless and he has an agenda, and he's putting the burden on you to fulfill that agenda. Okay, 801-590-8413. Uh, baptism date canceled. We are going to be using that afternoon to mourn the passing of Donkey Danita and her little baby. Whatever that meant. Uh, is salvation secure? I believe you have it up there backwards. Ooh. My assistant and resident scholar has just corrected me on something. I'm sorry. Let's fix this. Salvation, not secure to the Arminiists. Sorry, everybody. Thank you, Derek. And yes, salvation for those who this stuff has all happened for the Calvinists. Yes, absolutely secure. Okay, good clarification. 
I'm not an ardent literalist when it comes to the creation account. Uh, I am not saying that God, there's a question here uh, from an email, that God couldn't create the world in six seconds or six milliseconds or six years or 6,000 years or six days, 24 hour periods. I don't know, uh, but I'm not a literalist in it on 24 hour periods because I'm not sure we can take the Genesis account literally. Now this is a, um, this is a bone that goes along also with like Calvinism and Arminianism. Christians will attack and they'll say, you're not a Christian if you don't believe literally the, gener uh, the Genesis account and how it's written. So I just wanna read something to you in explanation of this email. Let me read to you Genesis one through five really quickly. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form, void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So we had no form, it was void, there's deep, there's waters there. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, saw the light, he said it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, listen. And he called the light day, and he called the darkness night, capital D and capital N in that sense. Listen, and the evening and the morning were the first day. That's what it says, first day, okay? Now, Genesis literalists say that means a 24-hour period. And if you don't believe that was a 24-hour period, you are not a good Christian. In fact, I would question your salvation. They literally say this, okay? 24-hour period, really? The first day was a 24-hour period. God has not yet created the sun or the earth to spin around it or anything on it. And yet it was a dogmatic 24 hour period when he called, because he says, and the evening and the morning of what it was, I don't know, were the first day. I'm not saying that day and night were not given titles then and did not exist before there were lights created, but the lights that God creates later on the fourth day give the day and night time. They give the day and night order. And then maybe you can start saying they were 24 hour periods. So while the day and night were obviously present before the sun and lights were created, day and night, first day, there was no time or seasons to govern what God called day and night. How could there be without the sun or without the stars? So when you go to verse 14 of Genesis chapter one, you read, and God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven, listen, to divide the day from the night. At this point, we can start seeing 24 hour periods at least, if you wanna do that at this point, but not until this, this, this point in time. Everything before that to say they were 24 hour periods is ridiculous. And let them, these, these lights that are in the heavens, be for the signs and seasons and for the days and for the years. You see, once the sun was glowing and the earth is spinning, we now can start saying, okay, that was a year. It's done that thing, that's a year. One day, it's done, that's a day. But until that was there, it wasn't a 24 hour period. There was, no, there was no time. I don't know how, I'm missing something or you guys are really stupid. And I admit, it could be me. But when I read it, I just don't see why it has to be a 24 hour period. And he goes on and says, let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day 
and the lesser night to rule the night. And he also made stars also. And God set them in the firmament of heaven to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God thought that it was God good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. That one I can say, okay, now we're, now we're, right now we're into time. But before that, day one, two, and three, how they're 24 hour periods, still beyond me. Okay, um, a rather annoying man we'll call BB, he writes all the time, says, I've had some bumps with you over the years, but I do miss your show on local TV. In your studies, do you find that man can become God in the next life? If so, what does that mean? God, no. No, I don't see it. Joint heirs with Christ, as we mentioned, yes. Children of light, as scripture says, yeah, absolutely. Ephesians 5, 8 says, for you are sometimes in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So I believe that we would become children of light. Romans 8, 16, 17, I read this earlier, the spirit bears itself witness with our spirit that we are children of God, not God, children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, not God, and joint heirs with Christ, there's that reference, if so be that we suffer with him, and that we will be glorified together. I think that's perfectly biblical, that the purpose of being a Christian is to become Christ-like by faith, not by those works. It's by our faith in him, dying to our flesh, etc. Galatians 4, 7. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son or daughter. And if a son or daughter, then an heir of God through Christ. I don't know that we teach that that much anymore. We, do, we focus a lot on Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I love that. But do we realize Jesus came so that we could become heirs with him to our father who becomes our father when we're born again? That is the purpose of being a Christian. It is to let our flesh die, let our spirit live, and we will slowly cast off this flesh and we will become heirs with Christ, it says, if we suffer with him. That's the message. You lose that. There's something wrong. For 2 Timothy 2.11 says, it's a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we will live with him, it says. If we suffer, we shall reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. That's what it says. So it's very basic in scripture, and it's a hard message to hear because we love the go, to go and we love to praise Jesus for giving his life for us. And we love to think of him on the cross and doing what he did. And I am, I am eternally grateful for that because without that, never make it. But there is more to this. And that is to become like him by and through his spirit, okay? So uh, we're gonna talk about more on that. We are get, there's no callers, slow night. People are angry and tired of me and my rambling. So I'm gonna read, wrap it up with this letter that has been passed around. I found this on my uh, stage here at the studio. Uh, this is from Jason. Last week we had a caller who was saying, how do we know we can trust the Bible? How can I trust the contents of the Bible, et cetera, et cetera. Jason is a devout believer and he's out there in his thoughts. He's, he's, he's really pursued Christ, he's a seeker. He says, I was a little irritated perhaps not irritated, but exasperated is probably more like it. With one of the final callers from the other night's Heart of the Matter, he wasn't rude or anything, but he posed a question I've heard so often it's beginning to bug me. Something to the effect of how do we know the books of the current Bible are it, that they are the ones that we are supposed to have? He writes, here's my take. No, the Bible is not it. It's the beginning. It's completely incomplete 
and imperfectly perfect. It imperfectly tells us of God, but perfectly tells us how to be his sons and daughters. It completely describes God from before creation, how he made everything we know from our universe to his coming, death and resurrection. If incompletely teaches us how to precisely live as a new man in Christ after the death of the old and new and how to carve out our existence in the world where blessings fall on the righteous and the wicked. That was a tough sentence, sorry. But it completely tells us how we can figure it out. Do people not get that the Holy Spirit is God living inside them? Read his word, learn him, lean not on your own understanding, be led of the spirit of the living God dwelling in you. If it were the end all be all to everything God and everything Christian, then the Bible would be completely exhaustive and perfectly definitive. I would order uh, us to live out our day to day. I mean, excuse me, it would order us on how to live out our day to day lives, where to go, what exactly to do, what's allowed and what's not allowed ad nauseum. I'd explicitly have, excuse me, it would explicitly have each of us have our lives mapped out by it perfectly. But who wants that? He adds, I grew up so afraid of walking outside his perfect will and that I desired a dictator from God. I wondered why he wouldn't speak to me directly and say, Jason, go to this college. Jason, take this job. Jason, marry this exact woman. Live in this area. Do this, do that. I would, it would have made a damn sight easier for me to follow him in that way. It's quite a conundrum for a Christian who desires to do God's will to just be left with just the Bible. The more I learn of him though, the less I adhere to what someone else's interpretation mandates. It doesn't appear to me as if God wants to be a dictator of born again believers any more than he wants to force us to choose him in the first place. It takes faith to become born again. It takes faith to continue living and growing as such. He goes on and he says, if there's other books that inspire you to follow God, read them. Don't relax in him. It's the Holy Spirit. Walk by faith along your own narrow path. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean doing the works. It means rely on that spirit within you and God to work with you, to bring about the fruits that he desires from you in your life. And don't settle for anything else. And this is kind of the growing thing that we see in the emails. More and more people are saying, I go to church, I do this, I do that, and I'm just, I'm just empty. And you know, we gotta realize, this is a responsibility of a relationship with you and God. Trust in it, live it, live it more abundantly. Pursue him fervently, radically, in faith, not holding back. That's what it means to be a Christian. So next week, we are going to read something called from the Morning Star Post, it was also left on our podium here, and we're gonna continue on and explain what I think is a good hybrid, uh, if you will, of both the Calvinist position and the Arminianist, and I think it was, solves a lot of uneven ground between the Mormon Christian debate, and at least it gives me what I believe is something viable and biblical to share with others when it comes to these things. Uh, we have, uh, okay. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride. Thank you for applauding. Going nowhere.
I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out, I'm going This man's awake, a storm's arising The dawn's awaiting till the I can feel the light 